What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. Happy freaking Monday and to the third episode of 2022. I am super excited and, uh, you know, I apologize. Last week, I uh, I guess two weeks ago, I came down with the Rona and I didn't have uh, an episode queued up for last week. I uh, wasn't able to get it edited. Uh, I sounded pretty gnarly, was not feeling super good. So we are back at it this week, ready to go. And uh, just as a refresher for what this podcast is, uh, I've tried to sum up my mission. Uh, as growth through story, strength through community. And uh, what I mean by that is uh, I sit down with folks and have them share their stories with the goal of picking their brain on lessons learned, diving into their experiences, mindsets, and tools developed to hopefully share with you uh, with the end goal is that as you listen, uh, you can start to take things away from the guests that get you excited about something, motivated, finding a community to join in, or tools that you can take back to your day-to-day life and maximize your life experience with. So with all of that being said, uh, I do my best to let the interviewees tell their story and practice active listening to dive deeper into the conversation. So that's my style. Uh, I hope you all are, uh, are able to take some awesome tidbits away. Over the past several months, you know, I started this podcast in May of 21. Uh, I've learned uh, an incredible amount and have been repeatedly humbled by the folks that I've sat down with and been able to uh, engage in conversation with. Uh, so, uh, with all of that being said, um, today's episode is brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee. Uh, just this past week, we were able to get our hands on some new uh, some new coffee, which I'm super excited about. We've tried the Flying Elk, uh, Flying Elk uh, Silencer Smooth, and I'm currently sipping on the Gunship Light Roast. And I tell you what, normally I am the kind of guy that likes to drink dark, really thick, bottom of the barrel jet fuel coffee that really just kind of kickstarts me. But this afternoon, uh, I'm drinking it. I'm editing it. I think it's like almost 2.30. It's 2 o'clock on a Saturday. And I am drinking the Gunship Light Roast. And it is perfect. Like it is not super caffeinated for me, even though I'm talking really, really fast. Um, but it's got uh, a lot of flavor, not super bitter, not super smooth, which is kind of nice for me right now, but it's got just enough caffeine to get me over the hump of editing because I have a hard time sitting still. So, uh, with that being said, uh, I've got a code get you 20% off. Use code Vanguard on Black Rifle's website to save on either independent bags of coffee or if you're fixing to get set up with a subscription, you can save 20% off your subscription as well. Just use code Vanguard. That's it. Just Vanguard for 20% off. And uh, yeah, that's Black Rifle on Black Rifle's website. Uh, Code Vanguard. 20% off. Please use it. Use it all the time. Tell everybody about it. But enough chat. Let's roll an awesome episode with Mr. Andy AKA the flip flop guy. What is up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to the Vanguard Project. For those of you new to the show, my name is Austin Dardine, and uh, I'm just a dude outside of Boise, Idaho. I've been really fortunate to have met some pretty cool people and got uh, introduced to some pretty awesome folks. And uh, if you're new to the show, my goal is uh, really just to get to know folks, share their stories, how they got to uh, where they're at, what they're up to, and to hopefully get you excited about something. Maybe uh, share the road that these folks took to get to where they're at, give you uh, a good frame of reference to lean on. With that being said, I was telling Andy, we were talking a little bit. It's uh, bright and early for me on a Saturday morning and we're chatting and I've got one cup of coffee in. We were talking about uh, killing bad guys on Call of Duty. So, Andy, man, <laughs> how are you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good, dude. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. 
It's a beautiful Saturday morning here in Montana. It's nice and snowy outside. You guys have been getting a bunch of snow recently too, right? Yeah, we did. It uh, it's it's melted for the most part, at least in the valley. I'm looking out the window right now, but we got we got a ton of snow, which is really nice because I was actually two weekends ago. I was up north, up in like Sun Valley in the Stanley area. And uh, there was like, it was the icy snow, you know, it was like yeah. the snow that you just don't want to be out in. And uh, so I'm really glad because I hope I was checking all the webcams and stuff like on Wednesday this week and there is snow everywhere. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited because I want to go snowshoeing. Like that's, that's my wife and I's winter shenanigans. That's got to get warm. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know, but it's good. So, <clears throat> but anyways, so I know that you and I tried to connect. So thank you for letting me reschedule i had some crap come up on the home front and uh here we are but uh, if yeah. you don't mind kind of just introducing yourself a little bit and uh yeah. for people that don't know you and uh i'll bug you and interrupt yeah uh my name is andy mokel um i have done guided hunts i've taught hunters education um i cook uh, prior to all this, I was a warehouse manager and ran a team of seven employees, up to seven employees, depending on the time of year, for about 10 years. Um, I've been sober for 17 years. I've never had a legal drink in my life. And uh, yeah, man, life at a million miles an hour, that's kind of how I live it. As as you know, and you've probably seen a bunch, like, you know, I, I just don't stop. So yeah, I know you're a busy dude because you uh you just texted me earlier this week and you were, you were in Georgia and I think I saw you were visiting a couple other fun guys back there. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I went back to Georgia. I was back there with uh, Baker and Jamie and the Hunter Recruitment Project. Nice. And having a good time out there. We took out a bunch of first time hunters and then um, another hunter who I don't think he'd hunted in over twenty plus years. So getting him back out, getting his feet wet and kind of understanding it and having a good time. That's awesome. I've heard good things. I talked to both Jamie and Baker and I've heard great things of the Hunter Recruitment Project. I love yeah. what it's doing. So Phenomenal you, stuff. yeah, yeah. And I love, I, I think, so I was talking to Jamie, it's been a couple of months. So I can't, I can't remember everything, but they send a lot of the meat either back with the, you know, the first time hunters, but then they also donate a lot of it. Right. Yeah, a lot of it goes to, you know, feeding the hungry or, or families in need, stuff like that. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that's super cool, particularly, you know, considering it's Christmas and holidays and everything. But did you, uh, so did you grow up hunting and doing all the outdoor fun stuff? Yeah, dude. I mean, as far back as I can remember, I've always experienced hunting and the outdoors. Like, you know, I think when I was six months old, I came up to Montana with my family on a hunting trip. Uh, and then, you know, shortly or right, be, right before that, or right after that was another hunting trip into the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. So yeah, I've been hunting my entire life pretty much since my first year of existence on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And you said you started guiding. Was that something that you like aspired to do fell into? No, it was, uh, so I was teaching hunters education yeah. and, you know, in California, a lot of people and we're going back. So this is like pre-social media, pre-internet, you know, like, sure, you could get on a different hunting forum or uh, anything Dial like up. that, you know, but 
so I would teach hunters education classes and I had acquired, oh, I think it was 800 or 1200 acres to run pig hunts on. And um, I would take new hunters from hunters education and I'd walk them around and, you know, we'd cover almost the whole entire property in a day or two days of hunting and teach them how to track animals, you know, what to look for as far as sign goes and animal trails and everything like that. And uh, most of the guiding that I would do was all for like charity events, right? So if there was a veteran charity that needed money, I would do free guided hunt. Well, I wouldn't charge the organization anything and everybody would pay the organization instead of me. Uh, and that was kind of how I really started really getting into guiding almost every weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and stuff like that. Just because for so long, uh, at that time, there wasn't many veteran charity organizations, um, that either were legit or that weren't taking all the profit for themselves, you know, like the, you know, aside from like Fisher house foundation, right. And Fisher house, I think they take like one or 1.3% of their, their profits from their charity goes to actual in-house and paying staff and stuff like that. Every, you know, the other 98% all goes directly back to helping veterans and their families. So for me, it was a big thing to try to give back to our vets and um, help them. And, and also in that same time period, what I would do, I would take vets that were just coming out, retiring, uh, whatever. And I would teach them like, okay, cool. You've got this kill skill, you know, you, you learned a bunch of things. So now we're going to take those skills and give you a weapons platform that you're familiar with. And we're going to repurpose those skills into hunting animals, spending time around the campfire and um, learning and understanding and, and trying to ease that transition back into civilian life. Okay. So I'm thinking, how did you get to a point where you kind of knew that that's what you wanted to do? And I'm trying to think of the best way to ask this because, you know, I know that it's, it's, probably a little overwhelming when you're like, Hey, I want to give back. Right. At least now there's a thousand ways to go find ways to give back. Right. How did you sit down and be like, okay, great. I, you know, I love hunting. I'm good at this. I'm good at teaching. I'm going to give back in this way. How did you kind of get to the point and establish yourself as that guy? Does that question Uh, make sense? I mean, so for me, it was just mostly local stuff that I was doing in uh, Marin and Sonoma County. And I would take I came to the conclusion that I wanted to work with new hunters in 2008. And then I'd say I started working with vets and and trying to recruit vets around 2010 and getting them out in the woods and, and working with them. And that was, I had, I'd had a buddy who was all about helping vets and paying respect and everything like that. And, and he was a very big influence in my perception of the veteran community and again, obviously, this is way before the social media stuff and all that kind of all that kind of jazz. So I sat down one day and, and my biggest goal in life was like, what can I do to give back to people? What can I do to help carry the tradition, you know, of the American way of life, which is hunting and outdoors and and my and, you know, and that's just my opinion. But what can I do to help rectify that? 
you know, as well as helping vets. And, uh, you know, my goal was always figure out a way to make enough money where I could do that full time. And I, like I said, I worked a warehouse job for 10 years and I was very fortunate with where I was working, excuse me, because of the fact that they kind of gave me free reign. They allowed me to go out and develop my hobbies and, and build on my life outside of work. Their, their main ethic was, you know, we want you to come to work. We want you to do a great job, but we want you to have an abundance of life outside of work. So work is not your only place. Yeah. And uh, I really took that and, and harnessed it. And in all my off time, you know, I mean, depending on the day I was getting off anywhere from two to 3 PM, which gave me the rest of the day to go hunting. It'd take me 30 minutes to get to where I was hunting from where I worked. And I could have somebody meet me at my work and then we could just take off from there or meet me at my house and we could just take off from there. Um, so that really helped me start developing that. Uh, and then when I left that company in 2000 and God, I think it was 19, 2019, uh, 2020, I can't remember. Um, I'd already done 10 years of footwork and establishing myself, um, which allowed me to kind of catapult, you know, now I have 24 hours a day, seven days a week yeah. into what I love and what I was passionate about. And, uh, that really helped. That kind of was the, that was the set off, right? That was just like, all right, now it's time to really do this and started doing everything, that I'd been working on along with that, you know, was the flip-flop stuff. And I'd been working and developing the flip-flop stuff, I think around that time for about two years and trying to figure it out and yeah. taking it to market. And with that, that was a whole, a whole nother can of worms. And the biggest thing for me with that in, in that time period was would my grandparents approve of me taking our family tradition and what we hold sacred to market and then also doing it all around and sharing it with everybody. And I had to sit down and have a meeting with my parents and some of my grandparents' best friends, because both my grandparents had died, and really sit down and talk to them about it. And they were like, yes, go for it. Your grandparents would be so excited. You know, and I talked to both of my uncles uh, and everybody was like, yes, go for it. Yeah. So yeah. that that was kind of when that started taking off as well and pushing in directions with that. Um, I also was running a podcast at the time. I, I still have the podcast. Um, I don't I mean, I still do episodes and, and stuff like that, but I'm I'm not big on marketing it. I'm not big on like really trying to get it out there. I don't you know, people are going to listen to it or they're not. You right. know, I mean, I remember when it started, I used to sit there and every hour I would refresh <laughs> the number of downloads to see how were my downloads for that hour. And uh, that totally consumed me. Yep. And I, I got to a point where I was like, man, this is like, I'm losing the joy in what I'm doing and I need to refresh myself. So I took a year off of doing the podcast and kind of focused on other things, building the brand and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. So I have a couple questions kind of coming out of that. So when yeah, you said you good. had 10 years doing legwork and I've got like kind of broken into the the segments, right? So when you were doing your legwork, right? Kind of building your brand with 
the guiding and giving back, right? What did yeah. that legwork look like for you? Uh, tedious. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny when people are like, oh my God, you know, things have been an overnight success for you. Yeah. Like you don't see the sleepless nights. You don't see, you know, eating rice and beans and only venison, you know, and that was a big reason of, of why I kill three to five animals a year is because I was trying to save as much money as possible and eating because I needed to be able to do what I was doing. Right. So like, you don't see all that kind of stuff. You don't, you don't see the phone calls and, you know, the ups and the downs and, and the all arounds of it. Um, it was, it was tough, man. It was definitely tough. And there's, there's times even still to this day when I'm, I'm going strong and, and everything is really successful and, still at the same point, it's like, what am I doing? You know, like <laughs> the grind, the grind doesn't stop. I've been a grinder my whole life since I was a kid, you know, and, and the grind doesn't stop, you know, the, and the, the biggest thing that I would have to, that I faced in all of that would be like, first failure is not an option. I'm not going to fail. I will not allow myself to fail. And when I, when I stumble, when I fall, I pick myself back up and I keep going. And when I have doubt, I talk to somebody else and they help me along. Right. And vice versa. When, when somebody else stumbles and falls or they need help, they can always reach out to me and talk to me about it. You know, it's um, failure, I guess, failure breeds success. So when I, when I fail, you know, or when I miss, you know, it's not, I don't look at it as a failure. I look at it as a success. And the reason why that is, is that if I'm not looking at my failures as successes, then I'm going to become overwhelmed. I'm going to drown myself in failure and yeah. I'm never going to get to that next level. I'm never going to hit that next mark. And when, when I fail, circle back, look at it. Okay, good. What did I do wrong? How can I correct this? What can I do in the future to make this better for myself so this doesn't happen again? And in that, what that breeds is another failure. But in that next failure, it's a success because the four other failures I had didn't happen that time. Right. Mm -hmm. And and, it, you know, it just kind of goes like that and and um, slowly building and learning and building and learning and, and, you know, going, going through the emotions of success and failure. Yeah. What has kept you going the whole time? Right. Because I know that cycle sucks and it's easy to get stuck in the rut. Right. Yeah. What, what kept you kind of moving forward and getting yourself back into the cycle of, okay, what did I do wrong? How do I make this better? Um, I mean, a lot of it is, is, the willingness to, to self-assess and be completely honest with myself. Um, and also, you know, within the group of my peers, being able to take harsh criticism um, where the criticism isn't actual criticism. It's, it's, they're, they're telling me my flaws. I'm honestly looking at those flaws, assessing those flaws and then moving forward 
with that information and taking that information and trying to restructure and rebuild and regrow. Right. Right. So when you, when you've got your peers and you're taking that harsh criticism, how did you get to a point where you found the right peers that you could trust to give you reasonable criticism? Right. I mean, cause it's easy for friends to be dicks to each other. Right. But being a constructive criticism is, is almost a different ball game. How did you build that trust with friends and peers? Uh, I mean, so I've worked with, with, I mean, and I guess I could just say I've worked with alcoholics my whole life, right? Um, ever since I was probably 13 or 14 years old. Um, like I said, I've been sober for a long time. And part of the program that they have there is essentially constructive criticism and figuring out what went wrong, how to correct what went wrong, and then move forward and stay sober. And I took that mindset and I took that personality into a much broader spectrum of life and really understanding that this applies to all of life, not just surrounding alcoholism. <laughs> and, uh, you know, slowly but surely, like, and, and with patients, the shitty people weed themselves out, right? Like the, the, the people that don't need to be in, in my life, they weed themselves out through, you know, their own personal frustrations or their own personal failures or getting upset when I give them constructive criticism and they can't take it and things like that. Right. And, and for me, the open-mindedness and willingness to understand that when someone is being a harsh critic of what I'm doing, there's a reason for that. And there's, there's a learning point there that I need to pay attention to and be attentive to. Um, and like I said, the, the people that aren't willing to grow kind of just, they fall off to the wayside and the people that want to grow and want to grow together, you, you start finding yourself and, you know, God, whatever it may be, puts us all in the same circles together as we continue to grow and continue to build ourselves and whatever it is that we're doing. Um, you know, I mean, I, it's almost like it's ordained to be true. Right. You know, and, and that, that's what I found is that when you're seeking, when you're seeking lower companions, you find lower companions. And when you're seeking higher companions, sure, it's going to take a year. It's going to take 10 years. You know, I mean, where I'm at right now, what, 2007, 2008 to 2021, 2022, you know, we're talking almost 15 years in there to get to where I am today of, of grinding, weeding through shitty people, serious failures, building myself back up and then continuing to go. Um, you know, it, it's just a, it's just a cycle and it all weeds itself out as long as I stay positive, as long as my uh, mental strength and mental capacity can handle it. You know, at least that's what I've found. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And I agree because over the, so I've been doing this podcast since May of this year. Right. So a very short amount of time, but it's crazy because you're saying a lot of things that I'm learning, right. Where it's like, if I surround myself with people and if I ask for feedback from folks that I trust, right. Kind of building that network, you slowly start to find yourself almost not, not, not like in constant contact, but always with a text message, a way of being like, 
is getting feedback and finding people that are like, you screwed this up. You did great here. Try this other thing. Move forward. Here's somebody to give a call. Right. And it's crazy just how easy in time it becomes to surround yourself with quality people and like-minded people. Yeah, absolutely. So you said, um, that when you started doing the flip-flop stuff, it was a family tradition and it was difficult to, um, kind of determine whether or not to take that to market. How, what, what led you down that path of being like, Hey, you know, I want to do the, you know, I want to take the flip-flop stuff to market. Um, and then also feeling comfortable talking to the family about it. Uh, so my first flip-flop that I ever did, you know, publicly was, uh, at Kuyu at a garage sale they were doing, which every year they would sell all their return gear at absolute low rock bottom prices. And I mean, it was insane because people would show up from all over the country and they would camp out overnight as if they were buying a new iPhone. (laughs) Right. Like that was that was the power that was behind the gear that they were creating. And that was the drive for people that loved their gear. So I showed up. And I'm in, you know, a place full of world class hunters. And I've spoke about this before on on a bunch of podcasts. Uh, I show up and I pull out a deer leg and I start slicing up bread and getting everything ready to start feeding everybody that's in line and their staff and everything like that. And you're talking serious, hardcore hunters that are hunting deer, elk, sheep, you know, goats, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? But they they are the toughest breed of hunter. And uh, I sat down or I didn't sit down. I was standing up because I was cooking. And I threw this leg on the grill and started cooking it. And slowly but surely, every single person gravitated over towards it. And everybody started watching what I was doing. Food, food. Yeah, right. And watching (laughs) me, not only food, but this is wild game prepared in a style that none of these people have ever seen before. And they're all lifetime hunters. Yeah. And then they're eating it and they're like, oh, my God, this is the best meal. This is the best wild game I've ever had in my life. Not only is this the best wild game, but this might arguably be the best meat I've ever had in my life. And, uh, you know, I fed all those guys and and everybody absolutely loved it. Um, and then I cooked for another group of hunters and I showed up to their barbecue at seven o'clock and same thing. It was a kind of an industry party. There's a lot of different heads of different companies there. And I started cooking and these guys are like, it's eight o'clock. And I pull out a 15 or 16 pound deer leg. And they look at me like, does this guy not realize how long this is going to take to cook? Like this yeah. fucking Californian, dude. Like, <laughs> he's an idiot. And, uh, so we start, I start cooking the leg there and all again, world-class hunters, absolutely amazing guys and they're all absolutely blown away and like jaw struck by what I'm doing. And they're eating meat in less than a minute from the, from the meat hitting the grill. Um, and that was kind of when it started to develop, like this is something more than our family tradition. This is something more than what I've, you know, ever witnessed before and, and how it's captivating the audience, you know, is remarkable and that was when I started bottling marinade in my garage. You know, I'd mix in a five gallon bucket, I'd mix a five gallon batch 
and I'd ladle it into 16 and 32 ounce mason jars and have a box sitting in my backyard and folks would call me and they'd say they want sauce. And, you know, there's a little envelope they could put their cash in and they could go in an honor system, grab a bottle, two bottles, whatever they paid for, and then they'd have it. So, yeah, I mean, that was, that was kind of the start of going to production and in that start, you know, trying to figure out the, the ingredients didn't change, but you know, you, I don't care what anybody says when you're making sauce, you can't call it fresh ingredients when you're using stuff that's been dried and aged and, you know, whatever, simply based on the fact that like, that's not fresh and you can't bottle fresh ingredients because you get botulism. And if you get botulism, you're going to kill everybody you're feeding. That's not good. Right. <laughs> you don't want that. So I had to learn and kind of understand what I was doing and, and how to build re- the, the same recipe without fresh ingredients um, based on those facts. Okay. Right? Now, had you been cooking like, this whole time. And this was kind of like a side, like, Oh yeah, I've been, and and it wasn't ever a side hustle. It was just like, you know, you did depending on how many deer I killed, I'd be like, cool. I killed five deer or I killed three deer this year, or two deer for California. You get two tags. Okay. And, um, I would look at it as like, I killed two deer. I can throw four flip-flop parties because you can only use the back legs for a flip-flop. Right. And a flip-flop party would consist of elk burgers, fresh salmon, uh, abalone, you know, oysters if we had them, what, you know, whatever we had caught that year and whatever was going on, that's what we'd end up cooking at a flip-flop party. And I just would love doing this for my friends. And I'd call 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 people. I think oh <laughs> the, big, well, the biggest party I ever had was um, that I threw was maybe... 200 to 300 people in my my backyard in Petaluma, California. And we cooked, I cooked a 86 pound roaster pig in a Lakaha China. And then they had a, they have a grate with Lakahas that you can throw over the charcoal bed. Okay. So I would cook a flip flop over the charcoal bed of the Lakaha and everybody, you know, and then once, once the legs were done and everybody was full, I'd usually do two legs. Um, it was a July 4th party. And then, you know, once that's done, well, then you lift out the pig and you throw the pig on the grill and then everybody, or you throw the pig on the table and then everybody comes up with shredders and start shredding the pig. And then you're doing pulled pork fucking tacos <laughs> and everybody's having a good time. So a flip-flop. So for people like, I feel like I'm familiar with, with the flip-flop. Do you mind explaining what it is? Yeah. So the flip-flop is, and my grandfather started this in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Uh, You take the entire back leg of a deer, you cut it off uh, right below the knee, you know, tendon still intact. At least that's how I like it. My dad does it a little bit different than I do. Um, you marinate the top with the sauce with the, with our family's recipe. And like, sure, you could use a dry rub. You could use anything you want. There's a reason why this recipe that I sell and that I have um, has been used for, you know, 60, Ever. 70 years. Yeah. Um, it is the best there. I mean, like, sure, there's, you know, people that want to do it with their own way because they're trying to promote their own brand, whatever, I care less. Go for it. 
Um, if you want the real experience, you use the right marinade. You mop the marinade on the top, salt and pepper it, throw that face down over screaming hot charcoal. Um, marinate the top side, the, the side that's face up, that's not cooking. It's just a big raw slab of meat. Marinate that, salt and pepper it, flip it over in, a, in about a minute. Start slicing off all that seared venison, you know, seared sheep, seared elk, whatever it is that you have, quarter inch thick steaks. Yeah. Once you've seared it or once you've sliced everything off and you've got a whole new raw side of meat, then you slap sauce on it again. Start getting it going again, right? Salt and pepper it, flip it over, start slicing. And you do that, it's, it's pretty much like a uh, 45 minute to an hour long cook for one leg. And you just need I'm like drooling. That sounds really good. It's unreal. I, yeah. How, so you, you marinate it for like a second, basically, right? And then is it just... Yeah, I don't pre-marinate. I don't yeah. do anything like that. Like every time you flip it and flop it, it's all brand new sauce. You know, I didn't, I didn't throw it in a bucket and, you know, do whatever. Yeah. So do you do a... Uh, like off animal. That's sweet. I, uh, so I killed, I just started hunting last year or mm. yeah. Last year was my first year actually going out, trying to kill something. I got my first little deer this year and I'm addicted to it. And I've been like trying to find all sorts of like recipes and stuff for the venison. Cause I've got, you know, a fair chunk of meat and it's like, I'm good at cooking steaks, but that's like a little bit different than, yeah. you know, venison. So I'm going to have to go look and see, do you do, do like recipes and classes and stuff? Um, I, so I'm working on the recipes side of it. Uh, I've been cooking wild game my whole life. And I mean, anytime, like if I'm cooking a, a stew or if I, you know, whatever it is that I'm cooking, like I crush it. I know that. And everybody always loves it. So I'm, I'm trying to work on having a recipes page set up on my website. Um, I'm a one man show. And I'm usually on the road 10 to 15 days a month. And then when I come home, it's like damage control, you know, make sure everything's good. Got to keep the girlfriend happy, spend time with her. Like, you know, so it, there's, it, everything is constant. It's always constant on, um, you know, so that, that kind of makes it difficult. It really, it spreads me out, but uh, that's going to be a big focus for this next coming year and sharing wild game recipes, but not only deer recipes, salmon recipes and, and other animals and uh, fish and stuff like that, that we've procured over the years and championed our own family recipes on how we do things and prepare. I love that. Cause I'm a, I'm a one trick pony when it comes to meals, like, like I make salmon in the oven and I make steak on the skillet. And that's like, all I know how to yeah. do. Yeah. With our with our sauce, I mean salmon in the oven, dude. If you put that spicy reserve over that salmon when you're cooking it, absolutely unreal. Okay. Uh, my buddy Jet Tilla, that's one of his favorite ways that he prepares salmon for him and his wife. Okay. I'm you gonna know, order pretty, some. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Nice. Okay. So throughout this whole process, I imagine you've, you know, I know that you've struggled, you've had some really pretty big wins and everything throughout all of that, what are some of the things that you're like, man, I wish I would have known this. Like if a 10, 10 years ago, younger me would have known this, I would have not made this mistake or I would have done this sooner. The only thing that I would say to that would be 
10 years ago, I wish I would have started marketing my sauce. Okay. I wish I, I wish that that's when I wish I would have started with what I'm doing now. Um, and I can't go back and change that. Um, uh, but for the most part, man, I, I, I don't really have an answer to that. Yeah. You know, cause everybody's story is different and every individual has different, um, successes and failures you know the biggest thing i would say is that when you're in a slump and when you're in failure it doesn't like don't take that to heart it's water off a duck's back pick yourself up and keep going one failure does not determine the rest of your life you know and and i recall a conversation i had with my uncle when i was 27 years old or 28 years old, and I had just bought the house and just got the truck. And you know what I mean? Life was happening. And um, in that conversation, I was like, well, you know, my life is not done, but oh, I got to sneeze. My life, you know, I was essentially being like, okay, cool. You know, I, I've made it. I've arrived. And my uncle sat me down and he was like, my life didn't start until after I was 30. Yeah. He's like, so to accept where you are is where you want to be for the rest of your life isn't necessarily a good thing. Yeah. There's more out there. There's more living to do. There's more things to, to do. And, and that coming from my uncle was, was paramount. Uh, and it, and it paramount, especially to even where I am today and how I live my life today. Um, you know, my, my uncle's life was, absolutely bananas. He developed the housing for the underwater camera for Nikon. Um, his Hollywood studio career was absolutely insane. His National Geographic photography career was equally as insane. And, and him and his buddies were some of the first people that were getting out there diving and finding all these new things and, and checking out underwater life and great white sharks and whales and you know, the whole deal. So, so for me, that, that gave me inspiration to a better way that I wanted to live my life. And I, and I role modeled or however you want to put it my life after how my uncle lived his life, you know, not many people can say that he spent time with the Kennedys and the, that he spent time with Fidel Castro in the same sentence, you know, <laughs> and that was how my uncle lived his life. And, and, for me, that's how I want to be able to live my life. You know, I want to be able to say that I spend time with this person and we're spending time with that person, you know, and have it be two mind blowing people from, from two different places, you know, and, and, uh, fortunately I've, I've gotten to that, that kind of point where I, I get to spend time with some of the most remarkable people on planet earth. Yeah. Um, that are really doing things and that are really making a change. And coupled in that is that I'm really getting to do things. And my goal is to change the hunting industry uh, as it's been sitting and uh, revolutionize some things. And I've done that and I'm doing that every time I go cook, I'm changing hearts and minds of people that don't hunt hearts and minds of people that are anti-hunting and hearts and minds of people that do hunt and how they're packing out their animals and how they're going to serve their wild game to their family and friends. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> so when you talk about inspiration and kind of 
wanting to spend time with big people in, you know, in different sentences and different scenarios, right. And say that I've done these things. How did you, how did you sit down and like put together like a list of goals and things where you're like, Hey, in three years, I want to be here. And here's the type of no. conversation. No, you just have goal. I'm, I mean, I have a list of goals and stuff like that, but not in that direction. I mean, okay. obviously I have dream people that I'd love to cook for. Um, but I never really sat down and was like, you know, this is what I want to do. And, and this is where I want to be in three years. Cause that doesn't matter to me. I mean, the biggest thing for me is that I want to cook amazing food for amazing people. And I want to change their opinion on wild game. Okay. And it doesn't matter what walk of life they're from. I, I don't, I don't care if they're, you know what I mean? If, if Obama called me tomorrow and Obama was like, I've seen what you do and I really love it. And I want you to come cook 100%. I would show up and yeah. go cook because to sit down with, with that man, a, a former president of the United States and possibly have the ability to change his opinion on wild game, how wild game is cooked and prepared. <clears throat> and on the backside of that change his opinion about hunters and how hunters are and, and what we do and what we procure for our family and friends. Like, that would be life-changing for yeah. all hunters across the board, for, for every outdoorsman in the United States. That would be an experience that would change, you know, tons of different things. Um, you know, so like it was, it was never really like, it was never really a set out determination of like, you know, I just want to cook for big names and big people. It was a set out determination of, I want to change the hearts and minds of every single person that I can with the food that I prepare and, uh, and the way that I prepare it. Yeah. So when you say change the hearts and minds, change the opinions, right? What is it that you're trying to impart on those people? That wild game doesn't taste like shit that, that, that hunters, we aren't Elmer Fudd. You know what I mean? Like we aren't guys that just drive around in trucks, getting drunk all the time, you know, handling firearms while we're fucking trashed. Like there's so much more to our lifestyle and what we're doing than that, you know, and sure, maybe in the 1990s or 1980s, um, it was really easy to put all hunters lumped into that category. Um, but at the end of the day, I'd say 90% of us are good people. You know what I mean? 90% of us are just out there trying to make an honest living and trying to do things the right way. And, and in that path, we're just trying to be self-sufficient and majority of hunters are trying to help other people. Mm -hmm. no, we're not bad people. Um, and, and, you know, I've, I've been, you know, pretty lucky and fortunate um, in a lot of the places where I've gotten to cook, where I get to show that, you know, and, and be an example of what the hunting community can look like. And that, you know, we, we can be open-minded people. We can be understanding people. We can be genuine people while we hunt and, mm -hmm. and hunting doesn't take that away from us. Killing an animal doesn't take that away from us you know yeah yeah i think i've learned learning right i've t I started to dip my toes into a lot of this stuff over the past two years right as far as 
you know, obviously like the cooking of wild game is something I'm learning now. Right. But not everybody is Elmer Fudd, right? It is so much more difficult to actually get up on an animal, kill it. There's so much more to all of it that is like, it's like, I don't know. It's, it's an experience, right. That you just can't help, but live without or like live with. Right. Like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's just so much fun and difficult and challenging and you have to learn how to do it and everybody's got their way of doing it and then i don't know it's there's so I, many layers to it you know what yeah. i mean from learning and understanding and comprehending the gear that we're using to trying to cut down every single ounce of weight that we can if we're going backpacking further into the backcountry you know picking out the right layering method that's going to keep us warm whether it's hot or whether it's you know i mean i've hunted in california in 117 degree heat Mm -hmm. in july and i've hunted in montana when it's negative 20 out yeah there's there's such an extreme level to all of it so you know you pick out your gear and then all right where am i going to hunt you have to figure out where you're going to hunt and understand the animal understand the area understand the topography everything that's going on to all right, you know, I've got my animal on the ground. I've taken my shot. I've done what I need to do. Now the work begins. Yep. Now I have to cut this animal up. Now I have to put it into game bags. Now I have to pack it out off the mountain. And are you five miles back? Are you 10 miles back? Is there water on your way out? Do you only have 32 ounces of water left? Did your did your hose, your bladder hose, did that get frozen while you were hiking? Right. So cold out? Like, what are the obstructions in there? what's going to happen while we're out there and what's what's going to make us a successful hunter and and everybody gauges their their success differently you know some people you know their their success is they just had a great experience walking the rifle around in the woods some people is i killed an animal and that's my success you know that's a whole different rabbit hole but um while you're out there and you're freezing cold or you're, you know, you're 10 days in and you miss your family and your wife and kids. I don't have a wife and kids, but you know, you miss your family and, and, and that stuff starts teetering on you and weighing on you. Do you stay and wait it out and continue your, for your last five days? Or do you call it quits? Cause you're not seeing what you want and you're going back home. Or do you take a smaller animal than what you wanted to take? Because, well, the pressure of success weighs so heavily in your head or, or, or are you just hunting for meat? You know, there's so many different uh, layers of mental stress that happen to every individual hunter on an individual basis. You know, what do you do there? How do you, how do you navigate that? And part of hunting to me is learning how to navigate that and learning what I'm okay with and what I'm comfortable with for myself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. How did you, how did you get down that? And this is totally like, I know a, a case by case, super personal question, but like, how did you get to a point where you're like, okay, great. I know that when I'm going after a sheep or when I'm going after an elk, this is what, this is what I would be comfortable with and would call it quits on, you know, my parameters of what yeah. I'll take. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know that's a loaded, loaded question, but you know, it's, it's not really though. I mean, it's, so it's different for everybody and I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, I've killed my fair share of small deer, you know, yeah. spiked forks, barely legal bucks in California, um, you know, and, and I've killed my fair share of small animals. And to be honest, it's, it just gets down. You know, I've got a buddy. Uh, his name is Doug Dreher. 
and and Doug is a prolific hunter and Doug is a a prolific animal killer and um you know I I started hanging out with him and his brother and they they would send me a text in the beginning of the season like if you don't kill a big deer I don't want to see it right <laughs> and Right. But so, but we're also at a point where, you know, by now I've killed 20 or 30 deer with my bow and with my rifle. And, you know, it's, it's time to, time to stop killing small deer. And, and, you know, I think my first season where I ended up killing a, you know, I killed two really good deer in California in one year. Uh, I think they were like five or six days apart. Um, I uh, had passed on, I don't know, 14, 15 different deer. Um, and in the area where I hunted in California, you're looking at 3% success on public land. Wow. You know, so to pass a deer is huge. To pass that many deer is even bigger. But also, you know, I had 20 days. I had 30, 40 days to hunt where I'm spending that much time in the field. I can, I can not shoot a deer on day two, day 10, day 15. And stay out there and stay after it until the, the right animal that I choose to kill. Right. Comes across my field division. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause like I, so this last year, you know, I, I got my first little, my first little deer and we, we were out and there was some does they were fat does at like 700 yards, but it was like straight down and straight back up to get to where they were at. And it was like, first thing in the morning we're like we haven't had breakfast yet like i don't want to have to like you know have to do that and so the deer that i ended up taking was just this small little yearling like he had big ears mm-hmm. he looked a lot bigger than when you get up on him he's like pretty dinky but i was like you know what it's my first one not gonna be choosy everything's fine know yeah. how to do it i need to learn i need to learn one that i can pull the trigger right and how to how to process it after and now that it's like, okay, great. I've got my first one under my belt. It's like, okay, I know where to look, know how to track them, know how to see, know how to find them, know where they're at, know how to pack. Well, we didn't have to, it was like right outside of camp. So we pretty much just like drug him back to camp. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, not going to be picky. Anything, if it moves, it's going down because yeah. I will eat it. And if it's legal, good. take it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's okay though, but that's okay. Like people, I think it kind of gets lost these days with social media where like people are so glued to the idea of they have to kill something big, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's, there's an abundance of, you know, wet hunters. And when I say wet hunter, you know, I'll put it to like anybody that's like a one to five year old hunter, maybe even seven to 10 year old hunter, depending on how many animals they've actually killed in the field. Um, there's a lot of wet hunters that are putting themselves under so much stress where they're afraid of the criticism of social media to kill something small. Where for me, I've got a mountain of skulls of animals that I've killed small that took me to get to the point where I'm comfortable doing what I do. You know, it's like this year for elk season, like I had plenty, I had plenty of bulls at, 25 yards with my rifle that I could have killed, you know, but they weren't what I was looking for. You know, they weren't, they weren't the caliber of elk that I was looking for. And, and 
what that's kind of gotten to for me is, you know, now I'm looking for an older, more mature animal instead of a younger coming up animal. Sure. And sure, maybe somebody else went and killed that same animal, you know, five days later. But that's their choice. That's their personal choice. And, and for me, you know, I'm at a point in my life where I can take that next step and and put the time and effort and energy into finding something that's bigger. I mean, I could have killed, you know, hundreds of cows this year. And I just that's not what I was looking for at the time. So I didn't do it because it wasn't you know, I, I'd rather be patient. I'd rather wait it out, you know, yeah. So when you say, when you say it's not the elk that you're looking for, is that based off of, um, skill and it will, yeah, well, yeah. But like the skill and difficulty in getting to it, like, are are you like in like a weird way, kind of leveling yourself up where it's like, Hey, I've spent three years. I can go easily find, you know, a forky now and it's no big deal. And now I need to go find something else and something else. Are you kind of like pushing yourself up that way? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Well that, and then also I like to surround myself with, hunters that are much better more efficient hunters than i am you know and and i like to think of myself as an efficient hunter but i want to swim in a pool of people that are way better than me because that way i'm always learning i have to stay teachable i have to stay understanding that like dude i'm not at the top of my game and i'm never going to be at the top of my game when it comes to hunter hunting there are so many more amazing hunters out there than me and there's so much more information that I can learn from all of these different people, you know, and that's kind of why I surround myself with people from all different walks of life when it comes to hunting, because everybody has tangible information that can help me become a better hunter and a better outdoorsman and a more ethical person when I'm hunting. Okay. Got it. Okay. So is there anything that you, before I've got maybe another personal question, but before we move into that, is there anything in either the hunting industry, cooking, things that you would like people to be aware of, maybe if they are trying to get into hunting. Cause I think that I run as far as listeners go, I touch on a lot of different folks that maybe don't hunt. Is there anything that you were like, Hey, if you're thinking about it, go do this or go find this. Any advice? Yeah. If, if you're thinking about getting into archery, if you're thinking about getting into archery hunting, the biggest thing I would say with archery is don't take one person's word for it on what bow is the best bow, right? Find an archery shop that's local to you. Go to that archery shop, shoot a bear, shoot a Hoyt, shoot a Matthews, you know, shoot a Bowtech, shoot a PSE, shoot all of these different bows until you find the bow that fits best in your hand. You know, and same with rifles. If you're going to get into rifle hunting, find the rifle that works best for you. If you have friends that have rifles, go out, shoot their rifles, see what works best for you, because what works best for me is not going to work best for you. You know, you don't have to buy into this, you know, brand of thinking that like, oh, well, this person shoots that bow. It must be the best bow. So I'm going to go shoot that bow. Like, No, because if I did that, I'd be shooting a bow that I don't like that doesn't work well for me. And I've never liked, I don't like the function of it. I don't, you know what I mean? But that's my personal preference, right? Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go use something that doesn't work well for me in another area of my life because it works well for somebody else. I'm going to find what works best for me as an individual. 
and then use that because that's what works best for me, you know, and it, you know, you'll find out different things about different products that maybe this person's okay with that. And this person's not okay with that. You know what I mean? So it, it, you know, it all kind of comes down to what fits you and suits you best as an individual. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. It's a, it's funny because to your point earlier about social media and big, you know, finding big animals, right. You can't, you can't compare what works best for you with somebody else. Like, you know, I shoot Bergaro rifles for hunting, right. And it's okay. Not only did I get a deal on it because it was used, but like, I know that rifle, you know, I know how it works, how it functions. I love the feel. I love the trigger. I know where it's going to break, but you know, I know that there are other big, like big name hunters that use Weatherby. It's like, I've never played with a Weatherby. I have no idea. I'm not going to go buy one because I don't know how it works, you know, without reading about it. But, and archery hunting is uh, challenging frustrating like i feel like i feel like shooting a bow is harder than shooting a rifle it can't be yeah yeah there's a lot more that goes on in that flight you know dude well that in like so i bought my first bow like i went all out this past two years right but like i bought my first bow and i was playing with it in the front yard and i went to the total archery challenge and it's nuts how like just a small little change in your back and it's off you're done that's it you missed throw your shot Yep. Okay. Well, I've got one more question might be a little personal, but I'm curious because I can relate. So you don't drink anymore. Nope. You haven't had a legal drink. So I have had, I had a drink on my wedding night and then I had a drink when I killed my first year. And those are the only two drinks I've had in probably three years now, three or four years. Cause I, my wife and I stopped drinking, I think it was 2018. I -hmm. think what led you to stop drinking? alcoholism man yeah uh i was an out of control alcoholic there was not a time in my life where i could be like cool i'm not going to drink today um you know at at the end of my drinking i was 19 years old i drank enough i had drinking more than most people probably drink in their entire life um i was living in my car i was homeless you know i mean i had plenty of couches i could crash on but in that time period, being able to ask friends to sleep on their couch is humiliating when you have no other place to go. So sleeping in your car is much more logical explanation because my ego and my pride can take that kind of smash. Um, you know, so I just camp out in my vehicle. Sometimes I'd sleep on couches or if I knew my family was out of town, I'd find a way to break into their house and sleep in their house. Nice. Um, my family wanted nothing to do with me not many people wanted anything to do with me because I was, I was a fucking terrible human. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I had, had lost two different jobs back to back uh, and kind of came to the decision one day, which I immediately followed up with action that I couldn't drink. I couldn't live my life like this, you know, and for me to drink is to die, you know, and, 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 People say jails, institutions, and death. Like I've been, I've been jailed because of my drinking and my drug addiction. I've been institutionalized because of my drinking and my drug addiction. I've been institutionalized because of my mental capacity and what I could handle. And, you know, I didn't know how to deal with my problems. So I thought suicide was the best way, you know, and, and 
I chalk that up to my alcoholism and my alcoholic brain not being able to, again, handle leveling pride and ego to do something better for myself. Um, and when I was 19, I, I stopped doing everything I was doing and uh, decided to live a better life. And then I took action and the steps that were required in order for me to succeed in that, yeah. that realm. What, what helped you make the decision to stop and then push you to follow up with action? I mean, where my, where I was with my life, yeah. you know, um, you know, I was at rock bottom. There was, it does, it did not get lower than that. That was, you know, I mean, it's sure it always gets lower than that is all depending on how deep you're willing to dig and what you're actually going to call your own personal rock bottom. Sure. Um, but I, uh, I'd gotten to a point where it was like, this is not, I'm going to die and mm -hmm. I don't want to die. I want to live. And if I hadn't have made that decision, I'd probably be in prison right now or I'd be dead. And, and that is 100% cut and dry. Like I had pretty much lost everything in my life. And those were my last two houses on the block or complete 180, go in a different direction and actually do something to better myself. And that was the direction that I chose. Yeah. You know, so I know that there's, I've talked to several folks about, you know, alcoholism, suicide, and making their 180s. What advice do you have for people that might be listening, right? And a lot of guys that I've talked to you about have been law enforcement, shitheads growing up, retiring from the military that really don't have that sense of direction, right? What advice do you have for folks to help make that 180 that you've learned, uh, you know, to either hit rock bottom faster to find that 180, right? Or, or pull themselves out of whatever the hole they're digging. Um, I mean, I'll speak, I don't know about hitting the rock bottom faster. Everybody <laughs> hits it at their own pace. But um, when you make that decision to change your life, you have to do it. Like there isn't, there isn't a safety fallback. There's, there's nothing that's going to catch you from digging deeper into another rock bottom. The only thing that's that's going to help, the only thing that helped me was a God consciousness, understanding God, accepting God, because I had been angry at God for almost my entire life um, for a myriad of different reasons. Uh, and then having faith and trusting that everything is going to be okay no matter what. Doesn't matter how dark it gets if I'm sober. It doesn't matter, you know, how painful it gets or anything like that. I'm sober. It's a good day. I'm not shitting blood. I'm not living in my car. My parents love me. My family wants to have me around all the time. You know, I have a host of friends that's remarkable and unbelievable. And those people count on me and depend on me to be good, right? So like, I can either choose to give all that up, or I can choose to go back to drinking and digging those rock bottoms. And I choose to live because life without alcohol and without drugs is way better than any other life that I could have imagined for myself. Yeah. What do you mean by the God consciousness? Um, like I said, so for a long time, I was, I was anti-God. I was anti, you know, and, and my understanding of God is not necessarily, you know, a religious man's understanding of God and, 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 um, 
the difficulty with me and religion, that's a whole nother podcast, right? Um, so I had to come to terms with there is a power greater than myself. And I am not the greatest power in the world. I am not the dictator of everything that goes on. Everything that I've had in my life, the success, everything is a 100% result of a power greater than myself working in my life and me having faith in that power that everything is going to be okay. Um, the God consciousness is being aware of that and understanding that and being willing and open-minded enough to expand, expand and continue to grow as a human being in that, in that, in, in that area. You know, and and the way that it was put to me, because, like I said, I struggled with religion. I struggled with the word God. I would not use that word for a lot of years. Um, and I, what I've come to find is that everybody has a different God all over the world. There's several, several gods. Um, when it really when you really get down to it, you know, uh, and I found my God in nature. Right. And the way that it was put to me was wake up in the morning and tell the sun not to rise. And my buddy calls me at 4 a.m. He's like, all right, get your ass out of bed, make your cup of coffee and go sit on your porch. And I did that. And I told the sun not to rise. Right. Because that's what I needed to do. Like that was that was the extent that was the obsession in my mind that I could control what the fuck is going on in my life. And I, and I went out and I sat there and I was like, don't rise. OK, go tell the waves to not come in, right? Go tell the trees not to grow. Go tell the wind not to blow. And I mean, obviously I knew walking into these situations that I couldn't stop any of this from happening, but like, you know, for, for whatever sake, like I'm still gonna go do it. I'm still gonna go fucking try because I'm stubborn and I'm an alcoholic and I'm a fucking asshole, right? Um, not a lot, I, I mean, that's changed, but um so i go out and i do these things and i found in nature a higher power i found a god in nature nature is my church when i'm out trekking through 18 inches of snow and i have my rifle slung on my back and my backpack over my shoulders and it's me and the elements and the wildlife that's my church that's that's where I find myself. That's when I have my most groundbreaking moments and achievements in my thought process and my psyche, you know, and I'm like feed off of that. And I continue to grow off of that as an individual um, and find a better way to live my life. So uh, another, maybe last question. <laughs> <laughs> good, man. We're good. No, this is, this is good. I, well, I love I haven't had like a, I, I love these conversations. So it's, it's funny because like growing up, you know, I didn't go to church growing up, but when I was in high school is when I really started and I actually had, uh, I was teaching Sunday school. I had my minister's license and mm -hmm. all that fun stuff. But it's, it's interesting because like I grew up pretty, like logic based you know so it was really hard for a, a long time for me to like accept faith like you like there being a god was the most challenging thing for me to like believe in because it's like 
I can't prove it. I can't see it. I can't touch it. I can't do anything like you've got this book and that's like it. Right. But it's, it's funny because you talking about finding God and kind of those existential moments out in nature, you know, like I've talked to other people about it and I can relate to that where it's like, you can't control any of these things. You know, they're all going to happen regardless they're here anyways you're not the end all be all for everything you can't tell the sun to rise you know i just think it's it's unique because like i can relate to like the being super stubborn and having to do something that like when you say it now you probably like did i really have to do that like that sounds (laughs) fucking crazy but like i can relate because like i've done stuff where it's like like i literally had to do like x y and z thing to prove to myself right nobody else but to prove to myself that like this is happening and it's okay you know yeah. No, I don't know. But uh yeah, I don't know. It's cool. Anyways, is there I I I'm just thinking about it now. Like I'm going, I'm gonna go up to Horseshoe Bend this morning and I'm like, man, now I got stuff to think about. Like this is good. I was gonna go download another audiobook, but like now I can just sit there with the dog in the backseat and be like, let's talk about life, bud. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, is there anything else that you have learned feels important? would like to get out there that maybe you don't get asked a lot? Uh, I mean, the biggest thing is, man, is, you know, treat everybody with respect, treat everybody with compassion. We never know what the next person is going through, no matter what they're showing on the surface. We never know what's going on in someone else's personal life, what's going on in someone else's head, you know, and, and have empathy for that and and try to figure out what can I do myself to help the next person through whatever it is they're going through, whether they're talking about it or not. And what can I add to their life? I would much rather leave someone with a smile than leave someone, you know, agitated and upset simply because I know on my worst days, I won't ever show it, you know. And, and in that, when someone is kind to me and when someone is generous and someone helps me out when I'm on my worst days, that gives me faith in humanity. And that gives me faith in the ability that we're all in this together. Doesn't, it doesn't matter what any individual is suffering from. We're all in this together and we can all help each other out and we can all grow in the right direction together. And that's, been one of the biggest saving graces for me in my entire life yeah okay i love it <laughs> well thanks man i appreciate you this is a lot of fun yeah i'm glad we Absolutely. got this andy once again thanks for taking the time to sit down with me man i hope everybody listening i hope you all took some good information away as far as maybe uh taking those next steps getting into marketing really just jumping into whatever it is that you're passionate about or maybe uh maybe taking some good existential thoughts away to go think about and uh, and tackle on your own um with that being said like i said earlier at the beginning uh this episode is brought to you by black rifle coffee be sure to use code vanguard for 20 percent off including single bags and subscriptions code vanguard for 20 Otherwise, in the episode description will be uh, some other codes that you can go use for a variety of other companies. But that is enough chit-chat for today. I hope you all have a wonderful week, and we will catch you next time.